Is this the great George Vesey? <laughs> nope, that was my father. <laughs> What's going on, my friend? Well, it's always great to hear from you. You you always wind up in exotic places, some of which are uh, in in the uh, Commonwealth of Kentucky. Oh, that's our mutual love that. We don't agree on sports. We agree on our love for Kentucky. Have you been down there lately or no? No, I really haven't. I haven't I haven't been traveling much at all since I retired. I just did so much of it, and I just don't have much. We, we went up only to Maine a lot. We had an elderly relative. We wanted to see up, him up there, so we fell in love with Maine. So at, at the moment, uh, Maine's edging ahead of Kentucky. I, we should be doing this podcast at Jack Dempsey's over to beer, but listen, it's George Vesey, so I'll take a phone call. So I'm going to let this one slide, all right? Okay. So I, I got to tell you, I'm stro- you're in my life so much. On the flight just now, I'm reading this book called uh, The Cornbread Mafia. I don't even know if you ever heard it, but you were mentioned in the book. I sent you a picture of it. Did you even know you were in that book? No, I had no idea. That's, um, th- that's me describing the, uh, the derby. On, on a day when it was so rainy that uh, the infield wasn't even crowded. Do you remember that day? Do you remember that Derby day? You know, I remember a couple of things, about, about a couple of rainy days. In fact, there was one Derby when it really, really was very close to snowing. I mean, the, the, the rain that hit you stung. It was that cold. Um, but that was a little bit later. That was about 19, uh, I want to say about 1990, because my son drove in, and he was going to school in Illinois, and he drove over, and I just remember he was there, and... You know, no, no way to introduce him to the Derby. <laughs> no, that's a horrible first Derby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but then there were other ones. He he came a couple of times. It was, it was so cold. I mean, it was just really nasty. I mean, it, you know, it could have been thirty six, thirty eight, forty degrees. But being Kentucky, the next time you go, it's eighty eight, <laughs> and there's and there's those nasty looking clouds coming in from the south. And you say, you know, one of these days we're going to get another nineteen seventy four. Uh, tornado roaring through like the one they had in uh, Nashville the other day. I uh, Every time, if there's a big boxing match on, I'll grab a boxing book. And every year around spring training, I grab a few baseball books. So I'm, stro- yeah. I'm strolling through a library, and I see a book, Baseball, A History of America's Favorite uh, favorite Game. I, yeah. gra- I grab it, written by you, my friend. I didn't even know you wrote this book, and it was perfect timing. Like I said, spring training, how much fun was it to write about that uh, that beautiful sport? You know, I, I'll tell you, it was fun, but only after my editor got on got on me big time to write a better book. I was kind of being a historian because mm-hmm. it was it was the first time they'd ever done a sports book for this wonderful uh, wonderful series they have. You know, small hard covered books, a modern library chronicles book, and they've had all kinds of things. You know, metaphysical things and a history of the Crusades, a history of. Um, you know, science, a history of this or that. And so she said, well, we've never done sports. Why don't you do a baseball book? And she was pretty young at the time and so smart. And I was writing this stuffy, trying to be a historian. And finally she said, "Uh, you're not having fun writing this. Uh, You must have good stories to tell. Did you ever meet Jackie Robinson? I said, well, as a matter of fact, I had two encounters with him in my life. (laughs) And she said, why don't you tell that story, what he was like, what it was like to live in the time of Jackie Robinson. And he was a real person. You saw him up close. And she got me going and and loosened me up so that I would write about the sport from a very personal point of view, which, of course, other, you know, all these great, you know, Irish poets and whatever had been writing things for this series, but from the heart. And, And I needed to get with the program. I'm glad you mentioned from the heart because as I'm reading this, it felt like you should be um, dictating this book. It should have been an audio book because it sounded like the voice from heavens, like it was a documentary. That's how it was written. So you can tell it meant a lot to you, right? Well, it's I love the sport. I grew up with it. It's the sport I know much better than anything else I write. I mean, I love soccer. I've come to, to, to really like it and appreciate it. But I know that I don't know as much as 80,000 fans jamming into a stadium uh, I just don't know the game. I don't know the history, and I don't know the names, and you know. It's, it's, so I'm, I'm kind of an idiot savant that way. But with baseball, I really do know, and I and and things happen. It's like Casey Stengel used to say, you know, every day in baseball, you see something you never saw before. And I have these moments, and I just say, you know, I've been watching baseball since I was. I mean, I'm 80 now, and I've been watching the game since I was literally, you know, or listening to it on the radio since I was six years old. So that's a, a lot of time, a lot of World Series and things, and it, the continuity of it is so wonderful. I mean, I, I know baseball is dropping 
in popularity to some degree in comparison to the NBA and the NFL, both of them great sports. But I still think baseball has a more psychic hold because it's a, it's a city and it's a regional sport, and people who aren't even baseball fans could tell you, Oh yeah, you know we're, we we you know let's let's say in Kentucky, you know yeah we grew up in the in the bluegrass area, but but once a year my daddy would take me up I seventy five into uh, Cincinnati and we see a day game the Big Red Machine or whatever it was. I mean it's 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 got a hold on people even if they don't follow it. I want to tell you my favorite passage from the book because it could be on a plaque in Cooperstown and it was early on yeah. in the book. It said the season begins in the hopefulness hopefulness of early spring. And it flourishes in the heat of summer, and then it breaks your heart in the nippy evenings of late October. That is true did I, poetry. Did I write that, or did I steal that from Roger Angel? I don't know, but it was in your book, so I'm going to say you had it. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, possession is nine-tenths. But, you know, I, I can't tell you that, that I'm the only one that's ever had these kinds of thoughts. That there's so much collective lore about baseball. And, and uh, you know, Roger has written so many wonderful things. I mean, he's 99 now and, and still still going in his way. But he's written so much beautiful stuff about baseball. And Bart Giamatti and, and other people writing about baseball, um, so Boswell and Dan Shaughnessy, people like that. So you could say there's almost nothing new, but here's the example. In 1986, when Mookie Wilson uh, hit that ground ball and it uh, it got went through Buckner's legs and the Mets won the big game and mm-hmm. they, they they came back to win the, the World Series. I was writing about that as lore. I understood that it was instantly lore, and I talked about why the Red Sox lost and why the Mets won. That the Red Sox carry on this original sin. They sold Babe Ruth for goodness sakes. And, you know, I was just playing with the idea of of the idea that it's a curse when you sell Babe Ruth. And he turns out to be Babe Ruth 714 times for home runs in his career. You are committing a sin against nature. And I don't think I ever used the phrase, the curse of Babe Ruth, or certainly I never used the term, the curse of the Bambino, which um, uh, Dan Shaughnessy did, you know, the great baseball mm-hmm. writer and columnist from, from Boston. But it's sort of become truncated, like I was the only person ever. You know, some people will say, oh, he wrote that. He called it the Curse of the Bambinos. He's the one that put the, said that the reason that the Red Sox, because they've got this kind of New England, clammy, religious craziness in them and, you know, the, 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 the gods against them and everything else. But it, it's just not true, because if you're a baseball fan, even not a writer, but just a fan, you know, you leave Fenway Park, you know, up until they finally beat the Yankees, you know, you leave them year after year, the stadium, year after year, Fenway, and you're just saying, oh, they, the Sox, they stink, they suck, you know, and, <laughs> and there's that feeling. Fans know it, so any writer who says that he or she is 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 thinking up the, this new, um, uh, the, the new aura or, or anti-aura about baseball, it, it, it's in there, it's out in the ozone. You mentioned you're 80 years old, which shocks me because you look amazing, you sound amazing and everything. You're so quick and everything. What are some of your earliest memories of the game? I used to love talking to my grandfather and him telling me about just old memories of the game. What are your earliest memories of the game that you remember? What was his? What what was one of his? He's just a Dodge guy. Everything was the Dodgers, the Dodgers. That's all he ever wanted to talk about was the Dodgers. Right. Well, that's the hole they had. Was uh-huh. he from Brooklyn? Yes, he was. Grew up in Pine Street in East New York. So the Dodgers were his life. He loved them. Yeah, see, my father uh, was adopted, but he, he was adopted by people who lived in the Greenpoint, Williamsburg area, which was then he was adopted by a Hungarian family. And, uh, you know, that was a big Eastern European uh, refugee area there and may, and may still be. They probably have you know, people still living and relatives of it. So... He was a Brooklyn guy, and then he moved out to Queens, married my mother, and, and, and so on. But that was that was the team for me. I still regard, I mean, physically, I regard living in Queens and growing up in Queens. Now I'm in further out. But I regard that as being the, the mothership is Brooklyn. That's where Long Island starts. The Battle of Long Island was, was held in Brooklyn Heights and, and all of that. And I just regard it as, as something very physical. So the first time, and you, you asked about time. Now, I was about five years old during World War II. And, 
1944. And at that point, you, you know, I can remember reading the papers and talking to my parents. You didn't know who was going to win the war. I mean, you, weren't, you, you couldn't be sure that, the, you know, quote, the good guys were going to win. But my father took me to Ebbets Field. They had a bond drive in Ebbets Field, and I think it was in the off-season. I, I, I think it was probably in the fall. So we drove down the parkway and made a turn and got on Bedford Avenue and going south down the hill, that glacial hill uh, from the spine of Long Island, going south along Bedford Avenue, and there's the ballpark. And you know, I'm five, and my father's explaining it to me. And I, I can still remember being in there because they had a tank on the ball field going around showing people this is what we got if you buy you know this much bonds we'll be able to buy another tank and give it to our <laughs> troops so, you know that it was it was what happened during the war but they used the ballpark and there i was and there was a a guy in dodger uniform standing there and i said dad is that a player and he said he used to be a pitcher for the dodgers his name is freddie fitzsimmons fat freddie fitzsimmons which he was <laughs> And he owned a bowling alley in Brooklyn, so he was doing two things. He was trying to drum up money for the, the bond drive, but also reminding people just by his presence that, oh, by the way, six blocks away is uh, Fat Freddie Finsimmons' uh, bowling alley. <laughs> so, so that's my first memory of being in the ballpark. No, no gloves, no bats, no, no uh, you know, Dixie Walker hitting one. And I don't think I got back to a game until I was almost seven in 1946. He took me to a game. The Reds played the Mets, uh, played play the Dodgers, mm-hmm. and uh, I can still remember. I've, I've looked it up. Uh, the, the Mets won. I think it was uh, saying Mets. The Dodgers won five to two, and uh, I know Dixie Walker hit a home run. So for that whole year of 1956, for the rest of that year, he was my favorite player. And into 47, and then because of our you know our politics and the fact that we we do come from a you know a mixed we had a lot of friends of you know one one race or the other that Jackie Robinson was really important to my family you know, we were liberal liberal types of the of the 40s lefties if you will and 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 all of that kind of went together with the Jackie Robinson was not just a, a great player but he was a cause the Dodgers were the good guys they did the right thing they they signed Jackie Robinson so that was that was my feeling. And Dixie Walker, because he was a Southerner, didn't want Jackie Robinson on the team, and neither did the St. Louis Cardinals, which were the southernmost, westernmost team in baseball. So, even though I always loved the Cardinals because they were the Dodgers' arch enemy, and and if you love your your own team, you have to love the arch enemy, yeah, because without them, the rivalry the rivalry wouldn't be there. So that's what I remember. Really, forty six and forty seven were the first two years I remember. You mentioned Jackie Robinson and the iconic number 42. And so many times now, you know, we celebrate him. All the players wear number 42. And I don't think enough is talked about his journey because it's not spoken about enough. What he went through, not many, and I can probably say not many in the world can ever persevere what he went through, right? I I would say probably people have gone through it every day Mm -hmm. in their own lives, but more privately— um, I was just reading up on this judge who uh, made some comments about Attorney General Barr, and I'm not going to get political on it, mm-hmm. but this, this judge in Washington, D.C., a federal judge um, named Reggie Walton. And it happens, here's, here's the, the, the trip on this one. Reggie Walton grew up in the you know, 40s, I guess, or 30s, uh, for, in the 40s, and he was a, um, uh, from Donora, Pennsylvania which is where Stan Musial is from. So a generation later, actually I think he was born in 48 or something like that, and he was a football player in, in high school and college, and he got in trouble, he was a tough kid. But he said it was tough for his parents, uh, a black woman and a black man, to get a job and hold a job, because if, if they were laying off people at the mill, it was usually the blacks that got laid off first, and that was just a fact of life. Mm-hmm. So here I'm reading about this prominent juror who's made all kinds of headlines in the last few days. I've met him and written about him because he was, and people like that imagine the idea that he would get laid off ahead of the the, the white guy, you know, working on the same uh, steel mill production, and and so I think I think people in this country have lived, um, you know, lived a Jackie Robinson life, but the stakes were not the same. I mean, Jackie Robinson could play ten years in the major leagues, make money, and because he was Jackie Robinson, he could turn that into 
you know, not that he was an image maker, but that he, just by living his life and trying to uh, talk about more job opportunities for minorities and, and making speeches and jogging people and, and, and being, you know, sort of a crank after he stopped playing baseball, he became a real activist. Um, but, but there are people who do that every day. So I, I, I mean, it's a long answer, but I, th- I think anybody who's a, of a minority has, has gone through some of the same things Jackie Robinson said. Was he on the level of like a Muhammad Ali with his status and popularity maybe towards the end of his career when he retired or was never at that level? No, no, really not. It was, I mean, first of all, he was, he was so conservative. I mean, you know how conservative he was? He was a Republican. Um, <laughs> You know, and he campaigned for Richard Nixon. He was a jobs guy. You know, Rockefeller and and Richard Nixon. I mean, to to, to today to me, you can figure where I'm coming from. But I, you know, <laughs> I, I think I think of uh, you know those are now the good old days. You know, good old Nixon. You know, all yeah. the stuff he got done and good old Rockefeller. So, so Jackie Robinson was, and and people would criticize him. People in Brooklyn, you know, people who were, had you know real leftist backgrounds would criticize him and say, well, why don't you? And he'd say, I'm doing what I can. And the fact was, he was a guy agitating comp- corporations to hire people, to come up with job programs. You know, don't be satisfied doing this or that. So he was, he was not a, um, uh, you know, he didn't, he didn't stir the pot the way people, the way Ali did. I mean, Ali, Ali came along in the, you know, in the 60s, and he, you know, Ali was one of a kind, but truthfully, Jackie Robinson was too, because as you said a few minutes ago, uh, Without Jackie Robinson, if he hadn't gone through that, that unique baseball experience. I mean, the, the movie 42, some of it is hype, some of it is made up. But he did go through the stuff. People yelling things and rival players and, you know, holding up hats in the, in the black hats in the, in the dugout. And the Phillies in particular, the manager of the Phillies making, you know, making racist remarks and all that. I mean, Robinson shut them up pretty well. And the fact is, even, even guys like Dixie Walker, Within Walker had said, "I don't want to play with this guy." And, and the owner, the general manager of the team, general manager said, "You're going to play. We'll take care of you after the season. We'll, we'll trade you if you want. You play." And by by a month or two into the season, Walker realized two things: one, as Leo DeRosa had said, this guy's going to make you guys some money, and two, Jackie Robinson was a competitor and a good guy. So that really wasn't an issue after the first month or two. But other guys held it. You know, the racial thing held on to it for years. I love the part in the book where you said, uh, I don't know if it was the Dodgers manager or general manager. He was getting death threats. Jackie was. And the general manager or the manager goes, Jackie, we'll all wear number 42 out there. And uh, Jackie says, thank you, but I think they'll, uh, be, they'll still be able to pick me out. <laughs> yeah. I think that was Gene Hermansky, who had a, uh, he was a spare left fielder. He, he never quite was a star with them, but he was a funny guy. He's out of New Jersey. And he had a real mordant uh, wit about that kind of thing. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Romansky who said it. A book like this, is it difficult to write because it's a never-ending book? Um, every time you want to finish it, there's a new thing, there's this, there's that. How do you know when to dot that last I and call it a day with this book? Well, that's, uh, I mean, first of all, I had a deadline. They wanted to get this book out in their next, you know, they do, I don't know, five, six a year. So I had a certain deadline of, you know, you got to turn it in with nine months or whatever. I'm I'm looking here at the end. Well, there's an epilogue, um, which is fun. As for a writer, it's fun to take something um, almost irrelevant and and make it a beginning or an end because it stands for the whole thing, but it's not the story itself. So I used I, I started off the book by writing about uh, playing catch with a wiffle ball or hitting with with a grandson who lived out in Pennsylvania. You know, he was five or six or whatever he was. And uh, and then I finished with my kid brother, mm-hmm. who's a professor at Colgate. He's, you know, he's 70 himself now, my, my little kid brother. And he's describing a game of town ball that some, I think a doctor friend of his or, or a historian or somebody uh, played every year to get everybody to wear, you know, white shirts and white slacks. And they'd, well, they'd scamper around this field. It was almost like a cricket or rounders, you know, where it was the baseball in, in the, and more in the round. And he said sometimes you had to jump over a little creek to get to first base or second base or something like that. But it was played in the spirit of 19th century baseball. So here's my, my kid brother living up in, uh, you know, r- rural country, uh, upstate New York, and talking about this, this celebration. So I just wrote about it. And what, what, what a thrill I got to think of him playing that way. 
like I said, you did such a tremendous job with the book because it had me as the reader wanting more and more from each chapter, which was fun and frustrating. But after you finished the book, was there one thing you regretted not talking about? Like, ah, oh, shucks, I wish I could have put blank in it. Oh, gosh. I, I not, in, not words because I think we did. I mean, she gave me the, this, this editor, Julia Chaffetz, who's gone on to have a very good career in, uh, in publishing, and deservedly so. But she encouraged me to write it. It had to be short, so it had to be very selective. And in some ways, you know, everybody would say, but, but Vessi didn't go into this, or he didn't go into that, or he didn't make a big thing about lefty-righty, or, you know, whatever, whatever the, the arcane part. Baseball has so many different corners of it that I would say, you know, I could have done a lot of different things. But given the space, I can't remember. But, but there is something that's missing from that book. And you, you tell me what it is. What, what's not in that book that should be in the book? Well, I, the one thing I think it might be is because your dislike of the Yankees came out just a tad in this book. So was it the Red oh, Sox coming Was it the Red Sox 04? Was that more you wanted to talk about? Um, no, actually, what, what's missing in the book is photos. And Okay, okay, here, yes. Here's where I was obstinate about that, in that I was working full-time at, at the Times. I was still working as a columnist at the Times. And you also, if you, if you, they weren't putting it in the budget for me to be paid for the thing, so I had to take, I would have had to take hundreds of dollars for the rights to these photos because I certainly don't have a, 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 a backlog of, of stuff that would, you know, there's some iconic photos. And, and Julia, the editor, pretty much said we'd really like to have it. And I really got kind of, snippy about you know not not nasty to her i hope but just the idea of it i just i don't have time i didn't agree we talked about it at contract time i i you know we agreed that i wouldn't do it and it, it's not in there but about 10 years later i was researching um the stan musial book and i was coming up with with uh, photos for that and uh, i'm sorry wrong it was the soccer book mm -hmm. the last book that i did came out in 20 12 or 20, 20 eight world cups for the, for the world cup 2014 it's called uh, eight world cups and and i'd covered eight world cups didn't cover that one anyway i had to go find photos of things to illustrate and i wound up using um the associated press had a, had a backlog and other people had them my friend at the new york times but i had to pay for every photograph that i got you know thirty dollars here fifty dollars there some freelance photographer that i knew she's italian she had a great photo that she'd taken at, a, at, the, at the cafe that we used to go to that's since gone on Houston Street, and she had taken a picture there, and, and all of this good stuff, and I had to pay for it. But by that time, I was getting paid re well enough for the book itself, and I did it, but I, I had so much fun doing it. Of course, I wasn't working either. I was retired by that time, so I had more brain time to, to do this, but it, it should have been done somehow or other. Uh, you know, I can't blame the editor because she did try and talk me into it. So I was just pig-headed about it, and it is a flaw. There's a great photo on the front cover. I'm looking at the cover right now, and it's the old Yankee Stadium, the big ballpark in the Bronx, as uh, I think it was Red Barber called it. And you're looking there, and um, I think somebody's just hit a home run. It's a World Series game against the Reds because I can see the Reds' uniforms. I can't read the scoreboard. It's a little small. But And then somebody said, no, that's Elston Howard who hit a home run in Yankee Stadium. And it's just so iconic. Of the, You can see the sky. You can see the, the filigree um, top of the grandstand sticking down. You can see the Bronx County Courthouse. It's, it's still open. You can see the grand concourses there. And the new stadium, new Yankee Stadium, is really a... a it's um, blanking on the word. It's a theme park, mm -hmm. and and when you're in there, you know you're like in Disneyland or something. Whereas the old Yankee Stadium, there was only one thing it was, and that was a ballpark. Even though they played football in there, and I guess a little soccer, but the fact is, it was a ballpark shaped like one and looking like one, with that great view out to right field to the courthouse. And uh, if that picture. I'm happy talking about it, right? It makes me happy just looking at it, a place where I, I didn't like the Yankees in those days, but now I can get very nostalgic about the old stadium. <laughs> but there should have been more pictures, you know, and I could have picked them. I could have found them, and if it cost me an extra 
five hundred dollars. What would it, it was just work. It was more work than anything. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this you know, ball players twenty years later say, if only on that day I had I hadn't shaken off my catcher uh, and I'd thrown a curve instead of a, a fastball, we would have won that. You know, you, you have your regrets. Well, that's a regret. I am the biggest Yankee fan. I have two seats from Yankee Stadium in my apartment in Astoria right now underneath the Joe DiMaggio sign and everything. So Babe Ruth is my guy, though. I have newspapers from when he played. I collect yeah. everything from him. Greatest of all time. What's your favorite story or best thing you found out researching George Herman? Hmm. Well, I was lucky enough to meet his daughter who passed oh. within, the, within the last year or so. Julia Stevens uh Julia Ruth Stevens. Now, she was adopted. She was the daughter of his second wife. Uh, and she was a lovely, smart lady. I mean, I met her. She was in her 80s, you know, which, which I am yeah. now. And I was like, wow, she's, <laughs> she's pretty together. together for the, and she lived to be, I don't know, 95 or 8 or something like that. And um, she, was, she was really sharp. I mean, she wasn't his blood, so to speak. But she spoke so well of him. Um, and and you know, probably 66% of it was BS because she was all saying, uh, I remember Daddy being home at night. He'd come home from a game and he'd <laughs> take me on his knee and he'd sing to me and all that. Now, I know she was probably making up some of it, but on the other hand, he was Daddy to her and he was around. And in the off season, he would go, he'd take her for a ride. He had this convertible or whatever it was. And he, he clearly was even as as much carousing and drinking and you know general general forcing around that he did. He was a real presence in her life. So the idea, and, and I agree with you. As a Dodger fan, as a Brooklyn Dodger fan, I regard Babe Ruth as my favorite baseball player of all time. I mean, no, not even close. Not even any of the Dodgers. Not Robinson or you know the because there was only one Babe Ruth, and he actually was a pretty complicated guy. He he was smarter than I think he gets credit for. I mean, he had terrible manners, and, mm-hmm. you know, he, he certainly misbehaved by the, you know, the, the old story about uh, a reserve right fielder who said that he roomed one season with Babe Ruth's suitcase, meaning the Babe was never there, you know, <laughs> overnight. But it, it, given that, that Ruth was a smart guy, he had an idea of things, he promoted himself, he talked about himself, he knew where he... He stood. You know, it's like like Michael Jordan calling himself by his by the third person. You know, that's not a good thing for Michael Jordan or something. Well, Ruth Ruth understood that, or Ali, or mm-hmm. you know, people who create themselves. But Ruth was like that. So anyway, I, I have felt over the years that I I, I did see him once, um, 1947, on the last day of the baseball season. They had an old timers game. It was the first old-timers game that anybody ever had and uh, it was George Weiss not not much of a showman really but somebody talked him into it so he had all the old uh, American League particularly American League ball players and then old Yankees play a two or three inning game now Ruth was dying it was known that he had cancer mm-hmm. and he was wasted and he wore that camel's hair coat you see pictures of him you know kind of his neck sticking out from it and um, you know just looking terrible but they introduced him, and he spoke from home plate. Now, my father and I were sitting out in deep right field, 60,000, 70,000 people in the ballpark. And I say, did I say it was had to be the 46, uh, 47 seat mm-hmm. because uh, of who pitched the, first, the game that day. But you could hear Ruth's voice. You hear the recording of it, of his voice echoing throughout the stadium, this kind of creaking, a croaky voice. Uh, and you young children of today, you know, enjoy the game, play hard, you know, all, all, all the crap that ballplayers would, would uh, put, put out there. But, and that was the best he did. You know, he was trying to be dignified and, and not, not be a character, which he was sometimes. But I, I still remember being able to see from, you know, 400 feet away or 350 feet away in, in deep right field, being able to see him in, the, in that camel's hair coat. The reason and then I, he died. He died in August the next year. The reason I love baseball so much are the small stories that no one, you know, no one ever knows about. So when I read everything about Ruth, and then I read about Roger Connor, the original home run king, 
Uh, right. Ruth broke his record. He just retired, and he he went and worked on a farm. Like you know, you, they weren't getting paid a lot, but life was and the sport was so simple. And that's why I love this book so much. It was those little like sentences about. Roger Connor, I'm like, wow! I thought I knew everything about baseball, and I thought I knew this. The original well, home thank, run king, thank I you love for that. that. Yeah, I didn't know who he was, mm-hmm. and um, I realized that he was the, the leading base, baseball home run hitter until Ruth caught him, and you know whatever it was, 23, 24, 25, and uh, and the, the Yankees, who, who clearly were not into public relations yet, Roger Connor was living up in. I don't know, New Haven, Connecticut, or something like that. He had been a, a, jan- a janitor or a, super, a supervisor of a school or something, not an educator, but he worked in a school, and he was up there. He wasn't, you know, what, an hour, an hour and a half away by, by driving, but nobody thought to say, you know, either have him there waiting to see if Ruth can break his record or uh, bring him down the next day and shake hands, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it would have been so easy, but they didn't think that way back in the mid-20s. Baseball and radio, you compare it to peanut butter and jelly. I still listen to games. I'm a, I'm a nerd, George. I listen to games from the 50s and 60s on YouTube and just just hearing these players and how quick and paced the game was. How about right. wh- What about either your favorite broadcaster or how about one favorite moment from the radio? Hmm. Um, well, I, I would say maybe, I mean, first of all, I, I remember trauma. I remember hearing the, the Bobby Thompson hit the home run and. 1951, I was home, uh, just got back from junior high school, and the Dodgers were ahead, and I sit and listen, and disaster strikes, and Thompson hits the home run, and I immediately went out into the neighborhood and picked a fight with some big lout. You know, I had no, I, I had no, I had no, I had no reason to fight the guy. You know, I, I knew him, but of course he cleaned my clock, and I'm coming home, and I'm all dirty and dusty, and just got, but but I deserved it for being a Dodger fan. You know, it was like like um, you know putting needles in uh, in, in yourself at a you know one of those uh, Eastern rites that they do. Um, anyway, I remember that games on the radio, suffering a lot. If you're a Dodger fan, you suffer a lot. And I remember the year before 1950. So this is the broadcaster and the and the radio. What radio was really good for was not just the result, not just the call of the game. You know the uh, the ball goes back, back, back. Uh, it's a home run. The Giants were independent. Not that kind of thing. But the Dodgers lost that year. They were playing in, oh, I can't remember if it was in Brooklyn or Philadelphia. But Dick Sessler, who hit a three-run homer, I think in the 10th inning, to, to win the game, to win the pennant, it wasn't a playoff game. It was just the last game. So the Phillies went to the World Series, and the Dodgers did not. And... Red Barber, who was a religious guy, you know, I think you know, Presbyterian uh, deacon or whatever, whatever he was, and you know, kind of a, a an arch um, ser- serious man, not not given to to lightheartedness, but because I think of his religious uh, educator um, mentality, he gave a little talk, and I always say it was a sermon that to Dodger fans, the season's over. Uh, the Phillies are going to the World Series. The Dodgers are done. And Red Barber is saying, well, you know, when you start the season, you, teams have hope, and so do the fans, and you have your ups and downs and good things and bad things. And, and then it happens, and you suddenly realize that it's, it's not going to be this year. And it wasn't folksy at all. It was dead serious sermon about accepting what you, uh, what, what, what you cannot change, you know, like, like, like the serenity prayer. And... That's what he was talking about, and it was just such a, a sweet moment that whenever there's a game when, you know, the Mets lose, a, you know, the season's over, or, you know, now they can't win, or whatever it is, I think of Red Barber, who was just a wonderful man, uh, very, very erudite, and, you know, and it was beautiful southern accent. He was from Florida, I guess, and, you know, he picked crops as a kid and got himself into college, and he wound up having a lot of interests, and and, uh, and they left the Dodgers a few years later and went to the, to the Yankees, which I never could understand. But I got to know him when he was broadcasting with the Yankees and, uh, you know, would talk to him up at Yankee Stadium and so on. So that was really a, a treat to talk to him. It's hard to fathom superstars like Ted Williams and others going to war. And when I read Ted Williams' book, I'm like, I don't believe it. Ted Williams is one of the best players ever. He went to war. You know, some of these guys were POWs. They got injured, never played again. And that always fascinates me that during this time, 
And do you remember during the time were fans and stuff shocked that these players were going to war, or was it more like, no, they're Americans, that's their duty? Well, I was young. I didn't get the political part of it during the war. I mean, you heard about it later, and I think maybe I have some of this in the book about the, the, the stuff that the Yankee management pulled on DiMaggio to shame him uh, into a contract. And, and then the fans, start, because they said, you know, Joe, why do you want so much money when, when you, you're lucky that you're, you're supporting your family, but your, your mother and father, so you get an exemption for this and that. And then the fans got on DiMaggio for not going into the military. So he wound up, his first wife, he said, screw it, I'm going uh, to enlist. So he enlisted. Obviously, he got a cushy, um, you know, playing baseball and, and uh, selling bonds and all the stuff he did. He was never, uh, you know, I don't even know if he ever took training. But the fact was, he, he was photographed in uniform, and he was valuable to the Army, and he went like that. But uh, I, I don't remember thinking about it so much. But the game that I told you about, the first major league game, uh, the first game I went to at Yankee Stadium was the last day of the season. And the pitcher for the Philadelphia Athletics was a guy named Lou Brissy. And he had been wounded in the uh, fighting in World War II in Italy when the United States troops had come in from the south and landed on the east coast of Italy near Brindisi. And they were coming up, and he'd gotten hit on some famous uh, hillside or mountaintop. He'd got hit by a shell or a bullet or something, and it pretty much, um, you know, hurt his foot. And the doctor was going to amputate. And Brissy said, you can't do that. I'm a professional baseball player. Uh, I was just about to go into the major leagues when I ha- when I got drafted. I want to play baseball. I don't want to lose my foot because I, I never could play. And he talked the doctor into saying, well, let me just see if I can do this and do that. And he, he did it, and, and Brissy avoided um, infection, and the foot healed enough so that he could. He didn't run well. I, think, I seem to remember he, he had a kind of special platform shoe or something but he wound up being the rookie of the year the next year and uh you know pitched for four or five years and you know probably his body wore out, wore out a little bit but you know you knew those stories the cardinals had three or four guys that were hurt during the war and other people had suffered during but but nobody talked about it i mean nobody ever you know i mean you you're i don't know if you served in the military i did not but you know the, the guys that served that i knew that were in world war Two or you know, Korea or, or Vietnam even, you know, they, they're more verbal about Vietnam because maybe, maybe they didn't, you know, didn't understand why they were there. But in those days, you didn't hear that kind of stuff. Interesting, interesting. And I love that the book jumped from one thing to another. It didn't go and, you know, it was Ruth. He talked about Ichiro. But then you also mentioned how baseball endures scandals, gambling, cheating, steroids. Yeah. yeah. What, bringing it back to now, I think it's the absolute worst, the Astro scandal. What are your thoughts on it? Um, I feel a little bit distant from it. I'm not a fan. Okay. I'm not. I'm not a writer. I saw them win. I feel let down in the sense that if you had asked me six months ago who my favorite non-Met is, I would have said Altuve. Mm-hmm. I, I I love the little guy. I love his smile. Uh, he didn't have a good World Series last year, which, of course, is tied into it because they were probably looking, uh, being very careful about the signals. But I, I feel let down like a lot of people do who like the Astros. I was happy for the Astros. I'd seen them uh, you know, be developed the way they did. And there's so many guys. Springer is a great guy. Uh, so, so many people on that team that it was fun to watch. And then to find out that they were big-time cheating. I, 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 the only problem is I don't feel... At this stage of my life, I don't feel as moralistic as a writer does or as a fan does. I, I just say, well, it's terrible, but but screw them as long as the Mets are okay. You know, the, 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 as long as I can watch the Mets and I think that they're you – know, the Mets apparently playing um, – have been playing the Astros a few times in spring training, and there's all kinds of stuff going on from what I understand on the day that you and I are talking that the, the Mets were goofing around with, uh, with Davis and Marisnik uh, who were on the Astros, who cheated. And, and one, I forget who it was, but one of them was goofing on them and trolling them and all that. But it, it's not going to go away. And I think the Red Sox, you know, as we're talking, it may be old news by the time people are listening to this, but I think the shoe is yet to drop on the Red Sox. When, uh, when Cora went over there mm-hmm. and he brought the same system, he brought something, and 
obviously because he had to he had to go. But but something about the Red Sox is gonna is gonna pop in. I don't have any inside information. It's just that my intuition and from where they're holding back, Manfred's gonna do something about them. And it, it you know can you take away a pennant? I mean they won the World Series. It's not like college basketball where you you know you can pretend that you're a pure sport and say well Villanova <laughs> didn't Villanova didn't really win the you know the the national championship back in you know uh, uh, eighty six or whatever that was or whatever they won you know that you can't even pretend they the the Astros won the Red Sox won and you you can't go backwards and say they didn't. Are you excited about the 2020 season? Oh, sure. I, I'm always excited in, in spring training when we're talking because you, you know the weather's changing. I mean, every day it's a, a few minutes more of daylight, and you know that there'll be it'll be cold as can be. I won't go to a, the virus is a different situation, mm-hmm. but I, I don't think I'll go to a game anytime soon anyway, even if it's we're safe because it's cold. But to, to sit in your ha- own house and watch a ball game and know that the game, the baseball, is back, I'm already thinking about, you know, McNeil. I hope the Mets leave him alone and stop trying to make him play four different positions. And watching DeGrom and hoping, you know, will Cespedes come back? I mean, that's my team. That's my. I'm a fan of it. And other people have their own teams and are fans. But the idea of it just starting all over again in, in the right time of year is... You know, as a million people have pointed out. Besides your Mets, obviously you speak with such heart and how much you love them. Any appointment watching for you if so-and-so's playing or so-and-so's pitching that you have to watch them, besides any Mets? Well, you know, certainly I felt that way about Altuve mm-hmm. and Springer. You know, I just liked the way they played. They played with enthusiasm, with smiles. Um, I'm not, I don't watch a lot of non-Mets games, so... I don't watch the networks. I don't watch MLB or ESPN. Once in a great while, I really I, don't hold this against me, Mike. But I really don't watch the Yankees or listen to them. I just, you know, as, as the saying goes, you got to respect yourself. I, I I don't mind eating an awful lot of Mets, uh, but I don't want to I don't want to gorge myself on on other games and other teams. All right, here we go. You ready for a few? I've had you for forty five minutes. You ready for a few quick questions? Sure. Best baseball movie of all time? Oh, Eight Men Out. No doubt in my mind. Uh, by John Sayles about the uh, White Sox. So relevant today mm-hmm. about what those guys did in different degrees. But the acting is great. There's some terrific, terrific scenes in there of, uh, you know, John Cusack and, you know, playing, playing all these doomed guys. Uh, David Strathairn playing uh, Ed Seacott, the pitcher. His wife rubbing his arm down, and anyway, Eight Men Out. It's so I I watch Eight Men Out. I've got it on a, 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 a DVD, and I watch it every spring in March or just before the season starts. Dixieland band playing throughout, and the gamblers sneering, and it's you know it's over. John Sales overdoes things, but uh, you you said a quick question, but uh, I, I say uh, Eight Eight Men Out for sure. How about this? You and I hanging out at a bar. I asked you this last time. Who's the coolest person in your phone that you have their phone number and they would answer if you called them? Oh, well, uh, coolest person. I mean, probably if I tried to, I don't, I don't know if she's changed her number, but if you want to include emails for messages, mm-hmm. um, you know, pro- probably I did a book with Martina Navratilova. Oh, sure that's I a great, that's a great answer. You know, I'm sure I could call her. Um, I've got a few Hall of Fame ball players. I mean, I, I don't know why I'm dropping the name. But no, drop him. <laughs> I, I got I got his phone number a few years ago. I haven't talked to him in a while, but you know, I did I did email him and. Uh, Wait, who was that? I cut you off. Who was that? Jim Palmer. You oh know, yeah, of course. Just, I just happened. To, I, I mean, I just thought of him. But I have friends who play. You know, Ron Swoboda. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, met. You know, he's he's a good friend, and we talk. You know, often enough on the phone. We we you know we just we just go back a long way. But um, I would I would I'm trying to think of any. Any politicians or public figures? Probably, but that's those you know sports, sports centric. Loretta Lynn. I did a book with her. Of course, of I, course. I, re- I recently got a book. Uh, I, I got her home phone number, and so you know if I did, now I haven't gotten around to it, but uh, you know I could call her. I'm sure. In the history of your you know writing days, ever miss a deadline? Um, you know, not, not 
because I didn't write fast enough. When I was in junior high school in uh, Regal Park, Queens, they had the typing class, and they put all of us behind a typewriter, and they, they showed us how to do it. So I can type pretty fast, even for a, you know, a clunky guy, um, you know, not stenographer level, but I can type. So I've always been able to, and, and maybe it's because I'm able to type pretty well that it just frees up the mind and knowing that you've only got 15 minutes and you've got to write 500 words in 15 minutes, somehow or other, you can do it because my mantra is I can type. And if you just keep moving your fingers, something will come out. And that's easy for me to say because I'm sure you in your line of work, you would, you would say, no, I know how to do this or I can do that. Or, you know, between my hands and my brains and my eyes, I can, I can do this. And, that, and that's just something I can do. But um, I don't remember ever... I mean, something happens. It's like, here's an example of what it's like since we're talking about baseball. Mm -hmm. I was um, at a Mets-Braves playoff game, and this is now about 20 years ago. I know that um, Kenny Rogers was pitching for the Mets, and Piazza was playing. I think he was trying to play with, with post-concussion syndrome or something like that. And the Mets had a lead, and Kenny Rogers started to walk people. And he was walking people on deadline and so we had to we had to get it because the next deadline maybe it was the last deadline i can't even remember but i know that my colleague uh very very professional reporter judy batista who who has moved on to other jobs now but she was going nuts yelling out get the ball over the plate and i said i said to her judy because i i didn't have the same deadline but it, it's comparable i said you can't affect what this jerk does if he's scratching himself and pulling up his pants and, you know, doing all the things that pitchers do when they don't want to throw the ball. If he's going to kill the next 15 minutes and you don't make deadline, it's not your fault because they don't want to, they've already got a partial story sitting in the office. And again, this is, this is 20 years ago before the web was so important because now you'd have more time. You could do the story. So in a way there's no deadline anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not saying the paper's going to close. The truck's going to go, uh, except for twice a day uh, when the paper's printed out in Queens. But I, I just don't remember ever, you know, just taking too much time and not not making. You can always write something. <laughs> we mentioned the we started the podcast talking about Kentucky. Do you have a favorite horse? Um, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's not a very original thought, though. It's going to be Secretariat, of course. And and the, the reason being that. I'm trying to remember the date, but about 25 years ago, something like that, I was at the Derby. I covered the Derby, and then on a Saturday night, I was at a dinner party. There were a bunch of us went out for dinner somewhere, and a friend of mine had a, had a, a date with him, and she was a horse salesperson in the Bluegrass area. That was her job. He, he was going back the next morning. And, but in the course of it, she said, you've never been to a farm out in the Bluegrass, she said, come on out, we'll go to Stone Farm, which I believe was where the, the horse that won that day, and I'm blanking on the name of the horse, so it'll come to me later. But anyway, she said, I'll show you where he was sired, the winner of the Derby this day, and then we'll take a little ride across the road, and this is, uh, you know, out in the bluegrass, out beyond, beyond Lexington, she said, and then we'll go see uh, Big Red. So you don't you don't turn turn that down. She the reason she was going there was she had a couple of English guys with money and she was trying to sell them a horse or something like that. So oh, that's I was just, Claiborne Farms, right? Claiborne, yeah. I guess one of them was Claiborne, and the other was Stone Farm. Okay, I yeah. Think. I went to Claiborne. I think Orb was there when I was there. I don't. Oh, they had his uh his thing there, but they still have Secretariat's thing, like it's like an old Hall of Fame okay. locker. It's still empty over there. Right. Well, <laughs> and of course, as well it should be. Anyway, I had never seen him run. I I was not covering sports in 73, which was his year. Um, but, of course, he's a legend, and I'd read Bill Knack's wonderful book on him, and et cetera, et cetera. So, anyway, she, this, this, this friend, had sugar cubes in her pocket. And she said, here he comes now. Now, you couldn't hear, you couldn't see the horse, but you could hear and you could feel the ground shaking because he was a big horse, big red. And over the hill comes Big Red, and he knows that if he hears people, there's going to be sugar. So he comes <laughs> down. He comes down right to the um, 
you know, to the, the fence, the white fence, and uh, stands there, and she feeds him a sugar cube, and I put my hand on his suede back. He was very old. He was, you know, 16 or 18 or whatever the hell he was. Um, and I put my hand there, and somebody else takes a picture, and I still have that. In fact, I'll, uh, I'll email it to you uh, just, just so you have a copy of it. But that, that, to me, having put my hand on Secretariat, and about six months later, I mean, they knew he was getting old. You mm-hmm. could tell. And about six months later, he was put down. Ooh, that's a great story. How about it, this? You know, it is. Yeah. And it's very touching to, to be connected. Uh, you know, who's your favorite athlete? Secretary. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not a horse buff. I don't bet. I don't. I, I never know from year to year. I, you know, I catch up with it for a little bit. But um, to have actually been on that, I mean, I, you know, I love Central Kentucky and having having a friend who could. I mean, the other part of the story is the father. God, it, it's annoying me that I can't remember the name of the horse that won. But his father, the sire of the Derby winner the, the day before was kept on Stone Farm in a in a stall and we went in to see him, the, the, the father of the champ. And as we get close, I'm kind of just walking ahead because I'm going to take a look at this horse and the groom, uh, I'll send you that photo too, the groom, um, a guy named Sam Ransom, R-A-N-S-O-M-E, who went by the nickname Handsome Sam, or Handsome Sam Ransom. Which I'm sure I'm sure he was. Anyway, he puts his arm out. Not you know a black guy working on the farm. He's not going to be ordering people around, but he knows what he's got to do. And he puts his arm out and touches me very gently and said, "He bites your head off." <laughs> <laughs> meaning, meaning if if you go one <laughs> step further, the horse is going to stick his nose through and and take off your your ear or your arm or something. And so. I said, Sam, thank you. You saved my life. And, you know, we had a great time. But I still got a picture of me standing with these two English guys and handsome Sam. If you could have witnessed or covered one event in baseball history, what would it be? Oh, gosh. And I covered the, I covered the U.K. losing to uh, Texas Western. You know, I, I covered enough that I'm, I'm satisfied. Okay. I guess I would have liked to have seen Pele play. Okay. Oh, um, that's, a, oh that's a different one. I never really heard that from a sports guy. That's a good one. Yeah, I mean, it, to 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 never have seen Pele in uniform. I've met him. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even. I know people. I know sports writers who played with him when he was uh, after he retired from the Cosmos. Uh, my friend Alex Yanis, who worked for the New York Times, covered uh, soccer before I did in a way. And um, it, it, Pele would just join in game. Now, can you imagine playing? And I played <laughs> soccer in high school, and I, I'm sure. If somebody said, "Hey, Pele, you know, we're going to have a little, you know, seven on seven today. Uh, Pele's coming out, or something like that," I think I would have liked to have been on that one. See, mine, my answer always is uh, the thirty-two World Series. Babe Ruth calling his home run. I always wish yeah. that was the moment. Okay, how about this one? Interviewing the Dalai Lama, Muhammad Ali, Tony Blair. We can go on forever with people you interviewed. Any memorabilia from any of them that you kept? No, I'm lucky enough that people took photos. I have yeah. a photo of me with the Dalai Lama. Of course. Um, I don't think I have a photo of talking with, with Tony Blair. Uh, I, I've never cared about souvenirs at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got World Series pins, all kinds of stuff, World, World Series credentials. But in a broader sense, even autographs. I mean, first of all, it's uh, a, a sports writer should never ask for a, an autograph mm-hmm. from anybody. It's just, it's just against all the rules. But uh, I, I can't. I mean, the photos are, are good enough. The fact that I have a photo that was taken for the times, they took a photo of the, the photographer, took a picture of the uh, Dalai Lama, but then he took a couple of me leaning forward. Um, I think that's on my website somewhere or, you know, you know somewhere I've, I've got that sitting around. And, um, it, you know, it's, it's more the memories, but the photos do help, of course. Hey, I'm going to look around the room. Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm looking right up at my bookshelf there, and on top of my bookshelf is a great big black um, wide, I don't think you could call it a Stetson hat, I don't know what it is, but it's a great wide thing with a little um, flowery arrangement in the front, and um, think NASCAR. Who, who wears those big wide-brimmed hats? Is it uh, Petty? Absolutely. I, I love King Richard. King Richard. I've met him, you know, six or eight times. He's 
sussed me out right away as one of them New York bleeding heart liberals. And <laughs> he, he would talk. I mean, this is long before Trump and all this mm-hmm. stuff. But, but you know, Richard was just a good old boy, a conservative guy. Yeah, hey, you're one of those. And so we we hit it off great because I'm old enough not to be uh, you know in awe of him. But I guess I was in awe of him anyway. I was going to interview him. He came to New York about 15 years ago. Um, I can't remember what the sequence, what the reason was, but anyway, I met him in some office, and uh, he knew I was coming, and off the bus, he had taken one of his hats, and he signed it to me, and uh, I put it on, and I, I had sunglasses in my pocket. So, you know, he's always wearing those wraparounds. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had wraparounds. I put them on, and he took a Sharpie out of his coat, and he said, all right, now you need the mustache. <laughs> And I said, Richard, Richard, I don't think so. So anyway, he didn't he didn't put the mustache on me, but there it's sitting on my on my chair. So if I have one sports memorabilia in my, I mean, I'm looking. I have a picture of me shaking hands with uh, George H. W. Bush when he was president. When we went in there to talk baseball with a bunch of writers and stuff. But um, you know, there's there's King Richard's hat, and and I will tell you, when you're wearing one of those hats in New York City, you're 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 obviously looking for attention by getting the elevator in this big uh, office building and I'm going down to the street and I get on and I, I, I had a suit on that day I can't remember why I had a suit on but I did I get in the elevator and a very very nice looking businesswoman gets on and she looks at the hat and she says nice hat so you know who who, who doesn't want to be complimented on their hat off one off sports topic, I just want we're not gonna talk politics or anything, but who do you think will be facing Trump in the twenty twenty election? You think it's Biden? Oh, I think I think it's I think it'll be Biden. I think that what we saw last weekend mm-hmm. is a um, you know, is a is a predictor of of the way the electorate is going. I mean I, I uh, there's no sense in talking with my heart or my head or whatever about the general election, but I certainly think that Biden has the momentum. I mean there's there's everybody's everybody's flawed that's that's been in this thing, including the the, the incumbent. But I, I just think Biden's got, as as we say in sports, Mike, uh, Biden's got the mo. He does, and you know what? Yeah. D- dabbling in uh in gambling, I look at the odds. I always look at Vegas odds, and Biden's only yeah. like plus one forty. So that means it's a lot closer than people think. Well, as 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 it's a here's a very New York saying. I'm sure you hear it when you go out to uh, Sheepshead Bay or uh, <laughs> or Coney Island. Your lips to God's ear. <laughs> I, I want to say, I'm going to finish up, because you mentioned your site, um, georgevesti.com. I have to say, your article about Don Imus was such a great article. I'm always on your site, always reading your articles. Um, what book do you think I should read next to yours? I read the baseball book. I read oh, the gosh. Eight World Cups. I was thinking the Bob Welch book, or you love Stan the Man. You speak so highly of Stan the Man. Which book would you recommend for me to read next? Um, Stan the Man... No writer should ever say that, but it's flawed in that I never did get to talk to him. He was pretty well done, but even his family, only only his rebel daughter, one of the one of his four kids, would talk to me. So it, it lacks it lacks some immediacy. It lacks people even even his his uh, educated uh, kids and the grandkids. They were told not to talk, so it lacks a voice. But I got other people who didn't know him as well, who had met him one time or musical have been nice to him so it's, it's more me than i would have liked because if it's a biography of musical it should have been more but he just he had a fatwa out on on writers last thing cause you, i just i brought up don imus does george bessie listen to sports talk radio sports talk where no i don't anymore since i retired i but i was a junkie for the fan not right away mm-hmm. but when they started to build up uh you know mike and the mad dog were, were really <laughs> it, it, one shouldn't Oh, uh, underestimate how wired they were in the 80s. I mean, it was a pretty good time in New York because you had you had WFAN with with those two guys could get anybody on. You know, Fred Wilpon, why did you do that? Or you know, why you... and <laughs> and uh, and then you and then you had uh, you know all the skits that they did. So uh, I think I think it was a, it was a good time to be to be listening to that, you know, the characters at night, Steve Summers and all of that. Oh, I just had Steve Summers on. I love him. Yeah, well, I mean, he's, he's, he's classic. So, you know, if you're, well, you won't necessarily be talking to him again. I haven't seen some of those guys in a long time. But it was, it was definitely a good time. I, I had thought that WFAN would be more, 
you know, news-oriented and detail or rerunning the game from the night before, talking about it, and it was, but it was, it was much more, um, you know, fan-oriented speculations. And I loved it when Francesca, his fans would call up and make, make trades. Well, how about it? And, and Francesca would say, no trades. I told you, no trades. <laughs> so it was, but, but uh, I stopped listening to Imus um, even before he pulled that crap on, uh, on uh, Rutgers women. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was woofing. Some, some black guy called in one day trying to explain. Now, this is before Jason Williams had that terrible shooting you know, that took place, but sure. that, he, that he did. But Jason had gotten himself in trouble and they were woofing on Jason, and this guy was trying to explain. You know, you got to understand, Jason's. You know, he's got some issues, but he's a nice guy. He's smart. He cares, and they just they just picked on the guy and his accent and this and that. And I said, you know, they, why are they baiting a, a man who's making a perfectly educated, reasonable comment? That they wouldn't bait a white guy the same way. So I I just felt like that whole I'm a show was, and and then we had the same agent. Imus was nice with me. Um, respectful, you know, he would say things, but, you know, it was with a wink. But I just, uh, I had enough. And then he, then he pulled that Rutgers thing, and that was just disgraceful. Yeah, that was it. So, georgevesi.com, your books are amazing. And I really mean this. This isn't just uh, blowing smoke. Absolute honor to speak to you. I'm, when I got to meet you at that Kentuckians dinner, it was awesome. I love emailing you. I love talking to you. Thank you for taking an hour out of your well, time to do this. Right, it's, it's my my pleasure. Uh, and, and I look forward to seeing you as soon as, as soon as the the ozone clears will uh, will catch up at uh, your place on 33rd Street. Mr. Vesey, thank you so much, my friend. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Have a great night. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.